The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Welcome to Barron's Live. My name is Greg Robb. I cover the Federal Reserve for MarketWatch, and we're going to use this quiet period. The Fed has started meeting today, but all the action will come tomorrow. So we're going to use this first day to kind of delve into the Fed and have a deep dive into what they're looking at and the outlook. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Luke Tilly, Chief Economist at Wilmington Trust, who is a uh, former Fed staffer to kind of walk me through this. And we'll talk to you and answer your questions. And hopefully we can have an interesting half hour discussion. Luke, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you again, Greg. I'd like to start using your experience when you worked at the Philly Fed. You know, the Fed, I guess it was 10 days ago, the Fed stopped talking to reporters, stopped giving speeches, preparing for this meeting. So give us a little color what happens during those 10 days. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, the, the preparation for the FOMC meeting really starts outside of those uh, those 10 days. Um, at some point, there was a blackout period. It got a little bit more formal over the time that I was there between uh, 2009 and, and 2015. Uh, but in the weeks leading up to the FOMC meeting, there's sort of this constant data gathering and conversation uh, going on, starting with like the bulk of the research department that gets together and talks about what's going on in the economy, what different models are showing them, uh, what their views are and sort of batting it around uh, before getting ready to prep the uh, president of the reserve banks. Of course, I'm, I was at the Philly Fed, like you said, this is just the prep for the um, reserve bank presidents. And uh, then it progressively gets to smaller and smaller groups and ends uh, really uh, with the, uh, the, the one person who goes with the uh, president. Only one person can go with each uh, bank president. Uh, I worked for Charles Plosser uh, at that time. And at the time, the uh, head of research was Loretta Mester. She's, of course, now the, the president of the Cleveland Fed. And that's the person who ultimately has all the information is going. So everybody's sort of judging what the economy is, what the inflation forecast is, GDP, sort of what the risks are. Uh, and then they've also received books from the board of governors, from the staff at the board with sort of uh, prep, actually these prep questions, specific things that they want to ask about. Uh, and then maybe some possible options for policy, not that it's predetermined, but sort of a, uh, almost like an optimistic, a middle of the road and a pessimistic type thing um, saying, you know, how, how, did, how did these things uh, strike you? Please dig into these things. And so there, there's just a lot of uh, discussion and a series of meetings leading up to that to prepare uh, the bank president to go into the FOMC. Let's say that a, a reserve president, like in the Philly Fed, President Harker now had some new thought about something that you know we're all debating now sort of like excess savings in the economy does he bring that does he discuss that beforehand or just when he gets to the board meeting does he send that around or how do they handle in that? terms of discussing it with the staff at the banks now every bank president is different of course you know harker uh was a president of a university and he's um uh, organizational dynamics or something like that uh, as his history 
And uh, President Blosser was a, a macroeconomist, you know, by trade, and he would be uh, just very different digging into things. But yeah, if there's if there's an idea uh, that they have that there's some Thing that they want to dig into, they would absolutely be tasking the various uh, professionals and researchers within the research department to dig into something for them. Uh, and that definitely happens. But to tell you the truth, a lot of the ideas are coming from the staff research that they are working on, somebody who has an expertise in a certain area. Um, earlier this year, troubles with the regional banking sector. Uh, I know that the research economists who were uh, focused on you know, that sector uh, we're being tapped heavily for digging into that issue and sort of being ready to talk about what kind of risks would be out there. So it's it's driven by situation uh, and it can be asked of the bank presidents, but it's also um, it also sort of bubbles up from the research that is always going on across the Federal Reserve System, including the regional reserve banks. Well, let's dive into things and make sure you send in your questions. We'll try to answer as many as we can in the time we have. So. Luke, what's your forecast for the economy now? What do you what do you see for let's go through a growth and then the unemployment rate and then inflation? What do you see for GDP for the rest of this year and next year? Uh, yeah, so this is uh, actually a really interesting time for that question because, as you know, we've got the Atlanta Fed GDP now tracker. I think just dipped below five percent for the third quarter. I think it's four nine or four eight right now, and I think that's just way too high. The Atlanta Fed people, you know, they say it's model driven and it can really show some of those fluctuations. We think about 2% growth in the third quarter, uh, and then actually flat. We have a 0% plugged in for the fourth quarter. We think that that's when uh, you get the uh, the full impact of the slowdown in CapEx that we've seen. We've seen CapEx intentions uh, slow down. Um, and so that, that'll come out for an annual growth rate of about 2% in 2023, with the bulk of it being in the first half of the year. Uh, that's slightly different from the quarter over quarter, fourth quarter that the Fed shows. Uh, and then we have another slow year next year, 1.3% GDP growth. So obviously that is escaping recession. Uh, so we are of, of the opinion right now, greater chance of a soft landing. Uh, but I think the really important thing here is when you bring those things together, our forecast for the second half of this year uh, and also growth next year, it is below trend. It's below sort of potential GDP or 2% or 1.8 or whatever you think the trend is. And that alleviates the inflation pressure. Uh, Chair Powell at Jackson Hole uh, mentioned, you know, the robust consumer and the, sort of the jump up in growth. And we've seen that in the aggregate GDP numbers uh, and in some of the month over month. But I think if you look over a longer term, what we're looking at is an economy that is much slower than that and much slower than what the GDP forecast from Atlanta Fed is showing. We think it's a one to two percent economy right now uh, that it has been hit by the interest rate hikes. And uh, it is slowing, but it'll it'll be able to escape that mild recession. So with the slowing economy, then you expect the unemployment rate to start to head higher. Do you have any numbers on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we do think the unemployment rate will move up to four percent uh, by the end of this year and move a little bit higher than that. I think right now three point eight percent. But anybody who looks at that series knows that it bounces around uh, quite a bit. Um, and it's likely to come down in the next report just because of the volatility of the household part of the survey. Um, and I think the most important takeaway here is that we haven't really seen job loss. That's not what has been driving up the unemployment rate. It has been coming from incredibly strong labor force growth this year, particularly from prime age. We've got the 25 to 54 year old cohort is the highest labor force participation it's been since the year 2000 or 2001, something like that. 
Um, the overall labor force participation rate is still low because of retirement and because of um, uh, sort of the older age of the baby boomer generation. Uh, but that, that growth in labor force, while job openings have been coming down, uh, it has really, really alleviated a lot of the pressure on the labor market. And again, that unemployment rate moving up has a lot more to do with people entering the labor force and just taking a little bit longer to find a job. And that's actually a pretty healthy development and should continue to alleviate some wage growth pressure. Right. And then, thank you for that. And then your outlook for inflation then. So with all that slowing a little bit, the inflation can continue to come down in your mind? Yes, we think so. It's going to come down. We've got uh, in a month over, in a 12-month forecast look ahead right now, it's 2.6% on the CPI. So it would be a little bit lower uh, on PCE, not quite down to the 2%. But we think it's been really encouraging. It's actually followed our forecast from where we started in January of this year. It's just about spot on with, with what we had expected. And uh, I think the most encouraging thing here is that the um, dispersion inflation has really collapsed. You know, it's really just in a couple places. It's in shelter, uh, which is coming down. Most recent CPI report, I'm sure you saw, had some medical prescriptions and over-the-counter drugs that are still running pretty hot, uh, uh, transportation services. But really, the number of categories that are driving inflation has slowed down so much. And this goes back to what I was saying about GDP growth and overall economic growth. Um, consumer spending has returned to a fairly normal growth rate. Uh, and that has really alleviated that inflation pressure. And that's why we think it can come down uh, to between two and 3%, even without those job losses, it's uh, uh, settling down into normal growth rates. So that's the headline, that's PCE then in the two to 3% range? And when does that- uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, for the 12 month look ahead, it's CPI at 2.6%, right. and then PCE, so that's the, uh, that would be July and then August of next year. Right now we have a forecast for August of next year. Uh, oh, PCE usually runs about 30 basis points below the CPI, so it would be uh, roughly 2.3, but that's not a, a direct forecast. We forecast the CPI. Seems something the Fed would, the Fed would welcome your forecast if it came through. That's a that's a pretty good yeah. for them. From them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and they have to keep recognizing the improvement in the data. Um, uh, Chair Powell was noting uh, and really focusing on 12 month core PCE growth at, at Jackson Hole, um, saying it really needs to come down. Um, he was he was saying it was kind of like stuck at this four and a half range, uh, but it was down to four point two in the very next report shortly after he spoke. Uh, the base effects for the next two core PCE readings from a year ago are massive. And we should be, as they meet, not the, not uh, this week, but as they meet on November 1, uh, they'll have two more PCE reports and it should be down to three, five to three, seven by that point, which is a very different picture from what he had at Jackson Hole. He'll still talk about risks, but I don't think there's any way to look at the inflation data and deny the rapid improvement over the past three to six months. Terrific for that. And uh Keep uh, sending your questions in. Thank you so much. And let's turn to the, what the Fed does tomorrow and what what kind of results we're going to get, you know, the headlines. So what, what are the headlines for you? What do you think it, it's, it's, it's gonna, we're going to see when we come at, at 2 o'clock? Yeah, I, uh, so I don't think that we'll see a whole lot of change 30 minutes later at 2.30 at the press conference. Like I was right. saying, he's going to have to acknowledge some improved inflation data and then also um, uh, he'll, he'll focus on the risks, which are, are definitely still there and they're present. That's what I would, do, I would do too if I was the Fed chair. But the more interesting thing, as you've asked, is going to be at two o'clock and it's going to be the revisions to the forecast. Uh, because 
whether it's, you know, it's, it's sort of two parts, either because of the data that has come out since the last forecast has been better, stronger GDP growth, lower inflation. Um, and that could also affect people's numbers that they are plugging in. If they've uh, sort of affected their, their view, um, then they would plug in stronger GDP growth and weaker inflation. So that's going to be key for us is expecting uh, that. And that's, again, sort of a, almost like a mark to market of the new data. And then also if, if that has affected their, their view, um, and I, I would expect it to come down with the, uh, the so-called dot plot and the interest rate projections. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised if the median for the end of this year uh, takes out that, that second hike, you know, the one that's sort of, uh, it's not penciled in in a timing sense, but I think most people agree the market is looking at the November one as, as possibly one more hike uh, communicated by the last forecast and then a Jackson Hole. Uh, but I think, it's, I think it's only three people that would have to move from one more hike to staying at where they are for the median to move down. Um, and that's going to come down to whether they think those risks are still present or if they sort of recognize uh, the, the improvement in the data. Um, so uh, on balance, I'd have to say I would expect it to be reduced uh, to not have another hike later this year. Uh, but if that's the way the forecasts turn out, then you're going to get maybe a little amping up of the uh, the hawkish language about the risks uh, that still persist. Wow. So we should step back a second because I think we missed the headline is that they're going to pause in September, right? So no move. That's, oh, yeah. That's <laughs> they're not going to hike. They're not going to hike tomorrow. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that was John Williams in New York Fed came out and said, like, almost. I mean, you barely have to read between the lines for him yeah. to say, I think we're in a good place and we need more data. And when the head of the New York Fed, who's also the vice chair of the FOMC, says that, then uh, then I sort of take it as, as a given. So, yes, they're, they're, they won't like tomorrow, I don't think. So they're going to pause and then it's going to be almost, a, would you call that as a dovish pause if they if they, they have one more hike penciled in for the year and you think they're going to take that out? That would be a dovish pause. In yeah, I, I would think so. And it's funny to think about the dynamics here because at least when I was working at the Fed, the, the uh, bank presidents and the, everybody would send in their forecasts a week ahead of time and they would bring them together and you'd have the medians, you know, published and everything. And uh, in this situation, you can imagine because it's not coordinated, really, you know, it's, it's people setting in their forecasts. And if it, if it came out that the median had no more hikes this year, uh, then as a chair, you've got maybe a pickle on your hands. You don't want markets to get too excited. So you'd have to speak more hawkishly. Uh, now, in the time since I've been gone, they've changed it. And, and participants are able to change their forecasts until uh, I think tonight. Yeah, the, the Tuesday night, the night before they can change it. So it might be the case that they're sitting around right now talking about it and saying, hey, can we get anybody to, uh, you know, put another hike in because we really need this. I don't think that that's the way that Powell would run it. Um, but if you do sort of get that pulling out of one, uh, the median, uh, there's a couple things that would happen. I think Powell would have to speak more hawkishly to, to try and talk up financial conditions, have them not fall too much. Uh, but I would expect him to return to some of the language that he's been saying. It's about, for them, it was, what was the, the pace that we needed to get rates high? How high did we need to get them is the second question. And that's sort of what he's focused on now. And maybe he would just say, okay, so now we've decided how high we think we need to get them. Now we're going to talk about how long they're going to stay high. And that's sort of like the, the last level of hawkishness that you could take on. So, um, yeah, I realize there's a lot of minutiae and a lot of stuff, but um, if, if that hike gets taken out, as, as I think is a good possibility, you'll just have it paired with some hawkish language and, and you know, stressing, don't get too excited. They might stay this way for a really long time. I guess my gut tells me that it's sort of like a dam breaking, the taking that, 
hike out would kind of swallow out any attempt to to be hawkish, but we'll see. But and then another thing that people are looking at is the 2024 dot, which for everyone it just shows where the Fed thinks rates are going to do next year. And they had penciled in in June four quarter point hikes, four point quarter point cuts next year. Do you think they that they stick with that, or do you think some people have talked that they would have like fewer cuts penciled in for next year as a sign of? Yeah, and yeah, and again, this is sort of the. Uh you know, the aggregation of a whole bunch of different uh, forecasts, which, you know, it's not quite as hard as herding cats, but, uh, but um, you know, they, they're not necessarily leaning on people to change their forecast. I would expect the, the, the cuts in 2024 to not change too much. Um, if you're an FOMC participant or voter or member, um, what has happened over the past, you know, six and 12 weeks? you've gotten some better information that, hey, those rate hikes that we did are having an impact. They really are pushing down inflation. Ooh, and the labor market is normalizing. Maybe we don't need to hike um, as much as we thought, you know, taking out a quarter point hike. But I don't think that would necessarily change somebody's view that they had uh, six to 12 weeks ago of how long you would need to keep them high to really have that, uh, to really drag on demand uh, enough. Maybe, um, maybe there, you know, there's some changes on the margin and enough to move the median, but I can't think of anything really happened in the past six or 12 weeks that would really make you think that, oh, over a 12 to 18 month time frame, inflation pressures would have changed that much. So on balance, I think it'll be pretty close. Uh, and, but we'll get a lot of discussion of that, you know, you and, and others will surely ask uh, Chair Powell about that, uh, about sort of the details around it. And uh, one of the questions we have from a listener, Dana saying, you know, oil prices have risen for the past three weeks. Um, how, how does the Fed factor that in as they, in, as they meet? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think um, it, when speaking publicly, somewhat dismissive of it. I mean, Jackson Hole, it was actually kind of astounding. Uh, Chair Powell said, you know, inflation hasn't really improved, but like in the very next sentence, uh, food and energy are determined by global determinants and uh, we're not going to pay attention to those. And then went on and did an entire speech about core PCE. Uh, so in, in some ways that that sort of public statement that's read by wide audiences is being a little bit dismissive of it. But it's definitely more complicated than that. Uh, the most recent CPI report I mentioned had uh, a big run up in um, not, you know, anything directly connected to energy, but uh, transportation services. Well, you dig into that, and a lot of it was airfare. You dig into that, airfares move a lot with jet fuel prices. So exactly what Dana's asking about, you know, the run-up in uh, oil prices does directly affect some of those things that ostensibly you've removed. You know, you've taken the energy out. And clearly, any company out there that's providing a service, um, you know, consulting, haircuts, restaurants, whatever it is, is affected by those energy prices too. So they're gonna be focused on what is the flow through of inflation. The beginning of this year, our outlook for this year put one of the biggest risks on energy markets uh, and that this sort of thing could happen. You could have oil moving back up uh, and that is a risk for inflation and not just for the headline, it is for the core too, because if it's sustained, um, then it can push inflation up. And then the other impact is um, you know, gasoline is basically a tax on consumers, uh, and, and unless you can change your driving habits a lot, and we, we have since COVID, 
Um, it basically takes away from your ability to spend on other things. So it does cut down on growth a little bit. So I think it's a good question uh, from Dana, from the listener. And there's um, there's a couple different parts of it with inflation and growth. Uh, another listener, uh, Ashley, has a question. So, so right now, so you think this is the peak rates now between five and a quarter and 5.5% is the peak? She said, when do they cut? When is the first cut? Yes. I think um, by the middle of this next year, and it could be earlier than that. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, outside the uh, uh, you know the consensus on that. Like, oh, that's that's not what's priced in the markets. It couldn't possibly happen. Uh, but there's a couple statements about that, and one is about sort of like the fundamentals, which is uh, inflation's coming down. It's coming down quickly, and you know, everybody knows that the, I, I think everybody, well, Powell talks about, and it's pretty well known that, that they focus on real interest rates. You know, what is the nominal interest rate? And then you subtract uh, an inflation break even looking forward or something like that. And the mechanics of that is if you keep the interest rate at five to five and a half percent or five and a quarter to five and a half and inflation is dropping, then even though they're not taking an action, they are tightening policy uh, because the real rate is actually rising there. And so what they what I think that they would be looking at if you know my my outlook plays out is you get into the fourth quarter of this year and then the first quarter of next year, you've got slowing inflation. If they keep those rates there, they're actually tightening uh, policy and that's going to be detrimental for growth, which is already slowing. So at some point they would have to say, you know what, we're not taking our foot off the brake entirely. But if you start dropping rates to you know five percent, four and a half percent, you're still pressing on the brake. You're just not pressing on it as hard. Uh, and so I think that even though it's not priced in right now and it's not expected, if things play out the way um, I expect, that certainly in the first quarter of next year you would start talking about that. And then the other thing is uh, sort of the second part of the answer is markets are always way ahead of the Fed on this. Um, the the two year is going to move down, and the markets are going to be pricing in cuts long before the Fed is really willing to say it out loud. We saw it in 2019. Uh, we've seen it in other cycles before. Uh, and I think that when you see the markets move, you should uh, be more and more expecting it. So in, I guess under your forecast, then the 10-year Treasury, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note doesn't go much higher than it is now. It doesn't go above 5% in your forecast then? No, yeah, we actually think it would come down. I think down below 4%. Um, I mean, the things that have really driven it this high Oh man, it was almost all on August one. You had uh, the Treasury announcing that they were going to borrow a trillion in the third quarter instead of seven hundred fifty billion, roughly. Uh, you had the the downgrade by uh, Fitch, I think, and then also, as sort of at the same time, Japan started talking about letting go of its yield curve controls. All these things that sort of pushed the ten-year yield up, uh, and also these strong growth numbers from Atlanta Fed GDP. Uh, but I think as 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 uh, sort of some of those things settle down and you get lower growth numbers, uh, that that should bring the 10-year yield down, but not nearly as much as uh, the short end. We're looking at an economy and sort of long-level inflation that I think would keep uh, the 10-year somewhere between 375 and 4. Uh, it'll be bumpy before we get there, but uh, yeah, I think we're we're likely close to the peaks now based on our outlook. There's a question from a, a reader about shelter, cost of shelter and the CPI numbers. I know I guess we could do a whole session on that, but um, do you look at it ex shelter, you know, or is that the way people should think about these things? Or he's trying to get a sense of how he should uh, factor that into the forecast for inflation. 
Well, yeah, it's it's an excellent question, and um, uh, Pal has been doing this since late last year, so everybody else has too. Shelter is a third of the the CPI, um, and it's slowing. It's slowing dramatically, but it slows at a 12 to 14 month lag after you see rents, market rents, and house prices move down. Uh, but we just had uh, the overall shelter number, I think, was 0.3 in the CPI. That's the lowest that we've had in a couple of years. And it really is following the lag from 12 to 14 months before of when rents went actually down and, and house prices went down. That has to do with some of the, the mechanics. So those should keep coming down and weighing on inflation as we go forward. And yes, I think it is important, if for no other reason than the FOMC and Chair Powell think it's important to think about services excluding shelter. Uh, and those jumped up a little bit in the most recent report, but they have been uh, improving significantly. And this is sort of, I think the biggest question for everybody right now is, um, as Powell warns about, well, those services, excluding shelter, are the ones at the risk of having higher inflation because wage growth is still so high and so much of their cost structure is wages. Well, we still have high wages and we have had it. They've been coming down, but they're still very high. Yet those, um, sometimes people call this super core, the, the shelter uh, services minus shelter, those numbers have continued to slow down and the producer price indices have slowed down. Firms are dealing with those high wage costs very well. Uh, and I think that that's, that points to how uh, sort of like dynamic and, and creative the firms have been in managing those costs. So it's incredibly important to watch, uh, both from an inflation point of view and from a FOMC watcher point of view. Uh, and we're we're uh, we're encouraged by what we've seen recently, um, and hope that it continues. Now let's turn to the balance sheet. There's a question, a couple of questions about the balance sheet. When when do you think the Fed will begin to taper asset? Uh, you know the the balance sheet, the uh, the runoff. Uh, conceptually, they'll do it when they see some tension in the funding markets, the overterm, uh, short-term funding markets. They don't have a real good idea of how many of those excess reserves banks want to hold on to for their own operating and for capital. Like they, they don't have a real good idea. Um, and they didn't know in September of 2019 either. But in September of 2019, it was the middle of the month, it was like September 16th or 17th, the overnight repo markets told them. Uh, because banks stopped. They, they had decided we need to hold on to all these reserves. They stopped dumping them, uh, lending them in the repo market and the repo market spiked. Uh, and that was a, a, an entire episode. And that was the signal to the Fed who had spent the entire year saying, hey, you know, the markets are going to tell us when it's too low. Um, that was their signal. It's gotten too low. Now, I wouldn't expect repo rates to spike nearly as much because they have the standing repo facility. So when banks start saying, hey, you know, we're, we're as low as we're going on, on reserves, uh, but it'll you'll see it in the rates and sort of the, the demand for the overnight repo facility. And you'll see those dynamics. I think that that would be sometime uh, beginning to middle of next year, not because necessarily of the rate cuts and inflation, just because we're getting to a level. If you think about um, the amount of uh, deposits that uh, banks have and th that they're trying to hold on to, and then you can calculate how much do they have on reserve with the Fed as a share of the, the deposits, a big part of the Fed's balance sheet. They're getting kind of close to, you know, uh, a rainy day fund, uh, so to speak, that, that they would like to hold on to. 
And that's really what's going to cause them to, to do that behavior. So very long answer to a very short and good question, but I think beginning to middle of uh, next year, and it's because of uh, bank behavior. Do they slow the runoff, kind of taper it, or and then stop? Yeah. Uh, I think they'll slow it. Um, if they get those signals from the markets, you know, they they always want to communicate, communicate, and then start to take it out, you know, to take the action if they can. September of 2019, they couldn't do that. It was like immediate uh, yeah. that they needed to start increasing the balance sheet again. Uh, but to the degree that they can prep markets for it, they would really like to do that because they know how powerful their actions and their words are. A lot of questions are coming in talking about that, like the alternative scenario to your forecast, sort of like a re-accelerate. Re People have like a couple of reasons for the, maybe inflation might re-accelerate. What, what, what do you, do you think, you know, how likely is that? I guess it's, it's for you less of a probability. Um, would, you know, yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's less of a possibility, but it's not beyond the realm of reason. I mean, it, uh, frankly, nobody's very good at predicting inflation. Um, economics community, uh, the economist community, the financial markets, the Fed, um, and it's it's very very hard to get a handle on. To the degree that there's upside risk for inflation, be coming through wages, uh, it could be coming through energy prices, like we talked about already, or a stronger consumer than we've seen. But the clients that we have, customers that we talk to, businesses, um, and not just businesses who are dealing with consumers, but also business uh, B2B, is that the signal is that the demand is not there for inflation. I mean, inflation was really driven by people with uh, a lot of stimulus, um, their ability to uh, take on price increases, their willingness of the supply chain problems on the supply side, but really it's the demand side that has uh, evaporated. You know, there's still capacity to spend, but not to take on the price increases. And that's what we're hearing. And that's what we see in the data too. To the degree that it, it re-accelerates, yeah, it's gonna be because job growth is strong. People are willing to take on more price increases. Um, and the only thing that I will say with like a whole lot of confidence is if inflation does reignite and surge to the upside, the Fed is gonna do something about it. Like they are absolutely bound and determined, and I think for good reason, that they will do what it takes to get inflation under control. So it is a real risk. Uh, it's not my base case, uh, but it definitely could happen. And it would it would come from basically strong consumer spending. And uh, I guess the final question, uh, one one of the listeners or reader has said he's a retiree asking where he should put his money in, in bonds or stocks. What do you say to people when they ask those kind of questions? Uh, well, I'm not a... Uh, a, a you know, a, a uh, an investment um, advisor. We've got a ton of them here, and all of our material is is on our website um, right now. Um, and that's a WilmingtonTrust.com. But uh, right now, we have uh, around our our our, stru our structural uh, allocations, and then uh, we make you know tilts, uh, a tactical allocation. We're slightly underweight to equities right now, and that's in the small cap uh, space. We're actually equal to large cap. A little bit of an underweight to international and we have an overweight to bonds so that's not the same thing as the question which is where should i put it but it sort of gives the idea of of where we're leaning right now relative to long-term benchmarks uh so that's that cautious optimism coming through in a portfolio recommendation um and i encourage you to uh, read all the all the stuff that we have on our website and sort of how we get there um look for look for uh, the letter from our cio tony roth and uh, so just to sum up, you think a, a soft landing then, no recession is, is kind of your message to people that the economy is going to muddle through 
that's our that's our most likely outcome but it's going to come with some some slow growth here uh in the second half of the year like it's uh it, it's it's challenging time dealing with the high rates but we our higher probability is on soft landing 60 to 65 percent chance terrific luke i appreciate you so much coming on our show today that this has been a great half hour and um i hope everybody enjoyed it and tomorrow on barons live barons gonna have is they're gonna talk tech stocks with technology correspondent Eric Savitz, he's an editor, is going to talk to David Reiterman, who's the founder and portfolio manager of Endurance Capital. So appreciate everybody listening and stay well. And tomorrow, look for the Fed decisions here. We'll have at MarketWatch, we'll have all the all the uh, Powell's press conference and all the decisions the Fed makes and then some reaction to them here. So hope everybody will pay attention to that too. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.